Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. In this first session, there is going to be some speculative theology, okay? Meaning, some of the stuff is stuff that I'm guessing at, but I'm not sure about, okay? And obviously, any of that is free. You can ask questions, we can have fun conversation, all of that. Make sense? Okay, any questions before we get started here? Okay, what I am going to try and do is, I have two talks prepped for today, but if we can move fast enough, I, we can even do a, a third. We can get into a third one, because there's one that I wanted to give to you guys, but we just don't have the time in all the sessions. So if we can, I'm going to try and move a little bit quickly so that we can get into a third, but if not, it's not a big deal, okay? All right, so today's talk is on the spiritual war, okay? The spiritual war. This is my best understanding at the big picture of the Bible. Okay, And the big picture of the Bible is actually really important and I think not very well understood. Okay, So we're going to get into a little bit, before we dive into the theology, I want to say that I have a personal testimony of this. Okay, So for me, when I was in high school... Um, I loved video games, right? Video games was like my jam, right? And, you know, me and my brother, we played like these these like role-playing games. I don't know if you guys are familiar with these video games, like World of Warcraft. You guys familiar with that game? Right, we used to play like the old version of that game, right? And I played it a lot and I loved that stuff, okay? And then um, I started finding God, right? I started like discovering God. And one day when I was in um, a church service, I felt like this question came to my mind, like, Dennis, does God want you to play so many video games, right? And I was like, I ain't going to think about that. <laughs> I, tried, I tried to push that thought out of my mind, right? But the thought kept coming back, right? Dennis, do you think God wants you to play this many video games? And um, after a while, I couldn't ignore it, and I had to answer it honestly. I was like, probably not, right? I don't think he does, right? And I said, Lord, if you don't want me to play video games, I won't. Right, and um, and so I made a decision when I was in high school not to play video games. Right, it was really hard. That was the equivalent of me like dying to myself in like the greatest way possible. Right, when I was in high school. Okay, and I made that decision. But the truth is, I still love video games. Right, I just couldn't play them. But I thought about them. Right, I was like, you know, um, I remember one time I was talking with a friend. And I was talking about these video games, and I realized I sounded like a lover, right? Like somebody talking about their boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that, you know? Um, but to kind of fast forward the story, when I was a senior in college, um, the Lord spoke to me one day, and he said, Dennis, you can play video games again. And I was like, that is the devil. <laughs> I was like, that's the devil, right? And I was like, no, I'm not going to listen to that. Um, but the thought kept coming back, and I felt like it was really the Lord. And I felt like saying, Dennis, it's okay. You can play games again. I was like, okay. So I bought a couple games, and literally the next like three days, I was just in a digital virtual world, right? Like I was just, I just played a lot, and I, I was feeling really guilty, right? I was feeling really guilty because at that time in my life, you know, I was doing a lot of ministry stuff, actually, right? I was heavily involved. I was leading a fellowship. I was like leading another organization at my school, all this kind of stuff. But I just felt so guilty because I could have been doing like productive things, right? But I wasn't. And the Lord, um, you know, I was playing this game, feeling really guilty. And then the Lord spoke to me, said, Dennis, do you know that I want you to be happy? And when he said that, it triggered something in my heart. I just started to weep, right? So get this picture, like I'm sitting in front of a computer, like plays game, and I'm just weeping, right? Like I'm weeping. And I just go, God, no, I don't know that you want me to be happy, right? Because 
you always want me to do all the stuff I don't want to do, right? Like you want me to pray all the time and just being honest, prayer is boring, all right? You want me to read the Bible and just being honest, it's really hard and I don't understand it. And what I really hate is I hate evangelizing to people and getting rejected all the time, right? And I was just just being honest with God. God, I don't know that you want me to be happy, right? And the Lord, I'm sorry to speak to me. He said, Dennis, I do want you to be happy. Why don't you talk to me about this part of your life? And this is weird. I felt like God was inviting me to a conversation about video games, which is weird. You don't really talk to God about video games, right? But I just started to talk to him about it. I was like, yeah, well, God, if you want to be honest, I would rather live in the world that Sony made than the world that you made, right? The world that you made sucks, right? I have to do homework all the time, right? And then when I graduate, I have to get a job and work like 40, 50 hours a week or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, God, I don't really like the world that you made. And what I, what I would rather be, I'd rather be in this virtual world that I know is fake, right? But I, f- but it, but I feel like I'm doing something important, <laughs> right? I feel like I'm killing things that need killing, right? I feel like I'm leveling up, all right? Like I'm growing in, you know, and it, there's something in this that's compelling to me. And, and I started to be honest with the Lord. And fast forward a couple more days, and um, I have a vision, okay? And this is one of the, one of the, the strongest visions I've ever had. And this vision, I'm in this black expanse, and I walk towards um, these figures in the distance. And I look, and it's like, and I realize it's God and this other, like, demonic-looking figures, like the devil, and they're playing, like, some kind of 3D chess game, right? And I walk towards them, and they're huge. They're gigantic. And as I get closer, I come to the edge of this, this like, game board, but it's not, like, normal chess. It's, like, three-dimensional, crazy, complicated chess, right? And the vision, I'm watching them, because I actually really like games like this, and I'm watching them play this chess game, but I don't get it. You know, they're doing stuff like that. I don't understand the rules of the game. It's really complex. I don't get it at all. And the vision, I turn around and I start walking away. And then out of that place, the Lord speaks to me, right? He says, Dennis, you live in the middle of the greatest war that's ever been fought. But because you can't see it and you don't understand it, you can't engage in it, right? And he told me, I promise you, if you trust me, I'll show you how to fight in this war, right? And in that word, that's a word that I've held onto right, for now 20 years, and because the Lord was speaking to the fact that I loved this thing that I knew was a fake, I knew it was a counterfeit, but there was something in it that was so compelling to my heart in, the, in a way that the church wasn't, right, in the way that all the religious activity wasn't, and I was living, and I was doing all this stuff because it was all the stuff that I was supposed to be doing, but I didn't really understand why I was supposed to be doing all of it. I just knew that I was supposed to be. In the meantime, I'm battling against all of these desires in my heart that are being met better by something else that's clearly not of God. Does this make sense? And this is the tension that I was feeling in my life, and the Lord was telling me, Dennis, that strong desire that you have, that longing that you have, that's actually from me too, right? And I have a fulfillment for that desire that's better than what the, the, what the world can give you. Does that make sense? But I had to take that on trust. I had to take that on faith. But that started a journey where I was really starting to pray, Lord, help me to understand this war because that was the thing that I longed to be in, right? I longed to fight in a war that's worth fighting, right? I want that kind of purpose to my life, right? That kind of sense of like a noble cause, right? That I didn't feel like I could get from just working or even just doing like ministry stuff as I understood it at that point in my life. Does that make sense? Okay, so all of that, 
is part of this testimony. And since then, I have studied the Bible a lot. I went to seminary, and I feel like I've gotten a lot better understanding about what the Bible is actually talking about in a lot of this stuff, okay? This is essentially the seminary class that I wish I would have had when I were in seminary. Okay, I had to put together a lot of this stuff myself. I wish they would teach us, and that's why I want to teach you guys. Sound good? All right. So, the heavenly war. Okay, from the biblical perspective, there are two, at least two dimensions. Okay? There's the physical, which we call earth, and then there's the spiritual, which we call heaven. Okay? It is better to think of heaven as being in another dimension rather than being like out past Saturn somewhere, right? It's not, heaven's not far away in outer space, right? It's right here. It's all around us. It's just in another dimension. Heaven and earth overlap in that events that occur in heaven occur, um, affect the earth and vice versa, okay? So heaven and earth are interacting with each other all the time, okay? Now, heaven is the primary dimension. This is what the Bible tells us. Heaven is the primary dimension because God is primarily a spirit, okay? And the rulers of the spiritual dimension also rule over the nations of the earth. Does this make sense? Heaven is the higher reality. The spiritual dimension is the higher reality. We live on the earth, which is the lower reality, but the problem is we can't easily perceive heaven, so we think of earth as the primary reality. Does that make sense? But from God's perspective, heaven is the primary reality, and the rulers of heaven rule over the earth. Does this make sense? Okay? So I'm going to try and give you Bible verses for everything that I'm talking about here. Okay? So this is from Daniel 10, verse 12. Then he, the, speaking of the heavenly being, continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. So this is an angelic messenger saying that he was sent, right, to give Daniel a message, but he couldn't give the message to Daniel because he was resisted by another spiritual prince. And he actually couldn't break through until... Michael, one of the chief princes, came and helped him. These are all spiritual beings he's talking about. See? And none of this makes sense to us. Because to us, God's sitting in his chair in heaven, and he just snaps his fingers, right? And you get a prophetic word. Something like that. Right? That's how we tend to think of it. Right? When we feel like God's not speaking to us, we tend to blame God. Right? God, how come you're not speaking to me? We don't understand that there's this entire spiritual realm, and in some ways, God is doesn't operate in the way that we tend to think he does. We tend to think of him as this ruler on high. Again, he's snapping his finger everywhere and everything's just coming into being. But that's not the picture that the Bible presents to us. Or let me put it another way. Why did it take God seven days to create the heavens and the earth? Why didn't it take seven seconds? And by the way, scholars debate that those days can be like a million years each, you know, like Those days, I think, are not necessarily 24-hour days. They could be much longer than that. Why did it take God so long to do that? Why couldn't he just snap his fingers and everything's as it is, right? Well, the answer is simply that our perception of God is not exactly the way the the Bible presents him, okay? He presents him in such a way that he actually takes time to do stuff. He actually works through systems and stuff like that. He's not just snapping his finger all over the place and making stuff happen, even though that's how we tend to imagine it to be. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, as for you, this is Ephesians 2, 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Okay, what Paul is saying here in Ephesians is that before you knew Christ, you practiced all of these sins. The reason you practiced those sins is because you were under the power and the influence of a spiritual being. Does that make sense? From Paul's perspective, you're like a slave. That is actually the biblical perception. You're a slave, and you can't help but do what you are influenced to do by these spiritual beings. You're at their mercy. Does this make sense? Why, they're the ones with the real power and authority. You actually don't have that much power and authority from heaven's perspective. Okay? All right. Now, after Babel, what you have, I should back up and explain this a little bit more. Okay? There is what I believe is a a divine council of ruling angels as we would think about them. The Bible calls them principalities. Okay? Now, I'm not getting this from myself. Um, there's a scholar named Michael Heiser who's written a lot on this subject, and um, it, he's, he's really good. He brings together a lot of scholarship from a lot of different places. But this idea of a divine council, that God rules through a divine council, okay? So again, we tend to think God on the throne snapping his fingers everywhere, but actually the biblical picture is more like there's all of these spiritual rulers who are not God, okay? Now they're created by God, all right, but they are independent beings, Okay, so after Babel, these spiritual princes who are called the sons of God in the Old Testament are given authority by the Father to rule over these nations and kingdoms. Okay, and they contend with one another for greater power. This is the part I think we don't understand. These are independent beings, just like you and I are independent beings, right? Just like we as humans fight, even if we're thinking in a ministry context, right? Ministries fight, right? I want to be like the biggest church, right? And we get jealous, right? And we try and build my own big church, right? And all this kind of stuff. Just like we fight, guess what? The spiritual beings also fight, right? And we see that. In fact, in the ancient world, that was the understanding. If one nation conquered another nation, the general belief was that because their God was greater, right? There was a sense in which the gods are competing amongst themselves and using their human subjects, those who follow them and and worship them, right? To fulfill their plans on the earth. Does that make sense? Okay, so these principalities are likely the gods of the ancient polytheistic world. Okay, so if we're talking about gods like Athena and Zeus, right, and Apollo, and all these different gods in the ancient world, I think the Bible would actually say that these are real beings. Okay, it's not saying they're figments of people's imaginations. In fact, the Bible actually affirms this in several places, which I'll get into right here, okay? So Deuteronomy 32.7 it says, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you when the most high gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. That term sons of God speaks of the divine counsel in the Old Testament. Okay, and what we see is in Genesis 10, there are 70 nations. So the general, the the guess is that there are 70 of these princes. Okay, and each were to rule over a nation, and the Lord Yahweh took one nation to be His inheritance, and that was Israel. Make sense? Okay. All right, Psalm 82. This is a really important passage for understanding the divine council. 
All right, it says this, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long, this is God speaking to the other gods, right? How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Okay, now the narrator says here, the gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And it's back to God. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Okay. So what's happening here is God is in the divine council. This is a divine council scene. Okay. And God is rendering judgment among the divine council and he's rebuking them saying that you are not ruling with righteousness over the nations that I have given to you. Okay. And because of that, because they're not ruling in righteousness, they don't understand, they don't have Yahweh's understanding. Because of that, the foundations of the earth are shaken. That speaks of war and calamity on the earth, right? Because of that, there's war and calamity on the earth. And then so God tells them, even though you are gods, meaning you have glorified immortal bodies, right? Your judgment is that you will die like mortals, okay? And that's the judgment that is spoken over these principalities. Does this make sense? We get a picture of this? Okay. Exodus 12, 12, this is speaking of the Passover, says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, right? If you have studied the Exodus, you know, what you know is that those judgments were specifically designed to show Yahweh's authority over the Egyptian pantheon of gods, right? When God darkens the sky, he's specifically coming against the authority of Ra, the sun god, right? And all of those judgments were specifically shown to say that the God of Israel is greater than the gods of the Egyptian pantheon. Make sense? Okay. All right, point C. God, in his wisdom, has now revealed his great plan, okay, to unite all of heaven and earth under Jesus' rule, all right? With his crucifixion and ascension, Jesus, the only begotten son, the one chosen before the foundation of the world, has proven himself worthy and has now been raised to the Father's right hand of power, the prime minister seat, okay? Though Jesus is of the same substance or essence of the Father and pre-existed with him before creation, he was mysterious to the princes of heaven, and now some have bowed their knee while others resist. Okay? So this is some speculative theology on my part, but I think it really makes sense. And it's like this. Jesus, even though he's in the same essence of the Father, he is unique among the sons, among the sons of God. Okay? He's unique. He was uncreated. He was not created by Yahweh. He was with Yahweh before time began, right? And John 1 tells us that all things were made through him and for him, okay? Here's the reality. All of history is a drama. We're living through a drama, and the main character is Jesus, okay? Jesus is the main character of the drama, okay? But it starts off with him being the only begotten son of God, living in the household of God, but not having the same authority as Yahweh, okay? The whole understanding of the gospel, which I'm going to get into in a second here, is that Jesus is raised to the seat of power, which implies that he did not have it prior to the cross. In fact, the cross is the event 
that makes Jesus worthy to rule over all the nations. That's why we sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain, right? The cross event is the definitive event that makes Jesus worthy to receive the worship of the nations. Prior to that event, okay, he does not have that authority. And that's weird for us because we think, well, he's God. How can he not have all the authority to heaven and earth? But my rebuttal to that is, well, does Jesus rule over the nations right now? And the answer is no, okay? If you know your biblical theology, we believe that Jesus is going to return one day and directly rule over all the nations of the earth, okay? Which means right now he does not directly rule over all the nations of the earth, okay? Well, my contention is that he did not rule over the, na- over the princes of heaven in the, in the last age. He did not have authority over them. He had to earn his authority, okay? And that's exactly, I think, what the Bible implies all over the place, okay? And I'll, I'll get into all the verses, okay? Ephesians 1.8 says this, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Okay? This is, this is Paul saying this was a mystery, meaning this was hidden. God didn't reveal this aspect of his plan before. But now, he has revealed it, that he always planned to put all the nations under the authority of Christ. Philippians 2.8 says this, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This makes sense. The cross is the thing that qualifies him. It gives him the authority. And why? Because he's making it clear to us what we have to do to get authority. I'll get into that next. 1 Corinthians 2.7. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay? Does this make sense? The rulers didn't understand. For to them, they saw Jesus coming. They knew he was the chosen one of the Father, the one predestined, chosen before the foundations of the world to rule over all the nations. So they already feel intimidated by Jesus in some ways, right? So Jesus comes on the earth. He's born incarnate. And it seems like they fear now that he is going to do what we believe he's going to do in the second coming, right? Which is come and establish his kingdom and rule directly over all the nations of the earth. And so what do the rulers of the, of the heavenly divine council do? They crucify him, right? They kill him, not realizing that in crucifying Jesus, they give him the opportunity to demonstrate unprecedented obedience to the Father, right? They gave him the very opportunity to show that he was in fact worthy to be granted the right hand of power. And so after Jesus is crucified, He descends into hell, and we don't have to get into this today, but there's a lot of scripture that talks about this because there's a purpose there. He he takes the keys, right, of hell and death. He ascends to the Father. When he ascends to the Father, he is given the right hand of power. He is given all authority over all the nations. So what does he do right after that? He comes back down to earth and he tells his disciples, I think I have this verse later, right? He tells them, Matthew 28, now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Does this make sense? Right? Prior to the cross event, Jesus has not been given all authority in heaven and earth from the Father. Okay? 
But after the cross event, he's counted worthy. He's given the authority by the Father. And now what does he do? He sends his apostles into the nations, okay? Which we will talk to talk about in a little bit. Psalm 110 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Okay? So this is what has happened right now. Jesus has been given authority by the Father over all the nations of the earth, but the princes, many of them, are in rebellion against the Son. Does this make sense? They're in rebellion against him, and that's the nature of the war that we're fighting right now. Okay, the war is happening. It's happening primarily in the spiritual dimension, but it manifests itself on the earth through the movement of kingdoms, which we'll get into. Okay. Now, the second part of God's mysterious plan is to have lowly humans be raised to the highest positions of authority in the heavenlies in the coming age. All those that swear allegiance to the Son will have eternal life, but the most faithful among men shall be made the bride of Christ, co-ruling with him over both heaven and earth. Now, this is some of my speculation. Okay, so my speculation, I don't think every Christian is part of the bride of Christ. Okay, my theory, most people do. Okay, I think it's a misunderstanding. All right, in fact, this this paradigm of the bride of the bride and the groom and the wedding feast, we see actually that there's many characters in this feast. Okay, obviously, there's the bridegroom who's Jesus, then there's the bride, then there's friends of the bride and the bridegroom, right? Then there's those who come to the wedding, some with the right clothes and some with the wrong clothes, and then there's some who are turned away at the door. Okay, these appear in many of the parables and stories that utilize this parable of the wedding feast. We all assume that we're the bride. I got to say, I'm pretty sure you're not. (laughs) Okay. It's really hard to be the bride of Christ. Let me put it to you that way. Okay. I think it's really hard to be the bride of Christ. All right. That is literally the highest position in this whole thing. All right. It's those who have kept themselves pure, right, for this entire age and have shown unquestioned loyalty to Jesus. Therefore, they share in the rulership. They're co-heirs with him in the rulership. Now, the beauty of it is that you have the calling to be that. Any believer has the calling, every believer has the calling to be the bride, okay? But as the scripture says, many are called and few are chosen, okay? There's many positions, and in fact, the scriptures actually warn that some of us will be like unwise virgins, right? Where we won't have oil and we won't have light in the time when Jesus returns. Oil signifies the anointing of the spirit. Light signifies effective ministry, right? And we won't have those things when Jesus returns. And so we go and we say, and we're turned away at the door, right? And we're thrown into outer darkness. A lot of people think that's speaking of non-Christians. I don't think so. I think it's speaking of believers because these are virgins. These are those who have not committed spiritual adultery with other gods, right? They haven't worshiped other gods. They've kept themselves pure for Jesus, but they're unwise, meaning they didn't have fruit in their lives. So because of that, they're denied all of the rewards of the wedding feast. The wedding feast is a place where the rewards are distributed, right? And they're denied entrance to the wedding feast. They still receive eternal life, I believe, right? But they have great weeping and regret, sadness and anger, right? Because they understood that they were not found worthy, right? To be part of the wedding feast. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, a lot of this is speculation. I'm not intending to say this is like complete doctrine, like you have to believe this. I think there's good reason for everything that I'm saying here. Okay. Ephesians 3.8 says this, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, 
This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's happening here is that God is playing the drama of the church, the unfolding of human history. The purpose of it is to show the powers his plan. Okay, And what I'm getting at here is we tend to think of it all about ourselves. But the Bible is going to say over and over that, look, the main character in the story is Jesus. All right, The main other characters are the spiritual princes of heaven. All right, You and I are the slaves in the story. Okay, We are the little side characters on the side that get killed off in the first scene. Right, Except the beauty of God's story right, is that he's going to take some of those side characters and elevate them to be main characters on that same level of the divine council. Does this make sense? And you have to understand, this is extremely offensive to the powers, because to the powers, you and I are slaves, right? You and I are slaves, but God, in his plan, has determined to judge those who have been unfaithful, right, and who have resisted the rule of his chosen one, right, and instead, he's going to raise humans who are the slaves, right, to the powers, he's going to raise humans to fill their seats on the divine council. All right, that's speaking of the bride of Christ, I believe. Does this make sense? Okay. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, I have to explain this. Okay, there's a lot of theology in this statement here. All right. What Paul is saying is that we have been adopted for the purpose of inheritance. This is what Nathan and I explained to you the other day, right? Like, we tend to think of adoption as like, oh, there's this cute little orphan kid, and oh, I'm going to take him and, you know, save him like that. But that's really not how adoption worked in Paul's day. Okay, the way adoption was not for the poor, adoption was for the rich in the ancient world. Okay, and the way it worked is that if you were a Roman noble, okay, you needed to pass on your lands and titles and inheritance, you need to give it to an heir. The problem is in that society, heirs have to be male. Okay, it was a patriarchal society, you can't have women sharing having the inheritance. So, what you would do is you would adopt the second son of another noble family. All right, that's how inheritance works. Now, if you see in Paul, whenever Paul speaks about adoption, it's always in the context of inheritance, okay? We've been adopted to be heirs of the kingdom that is being passed from the father to the son, okay? That's actually what the story about. The, the great story is Jesus, and it starts off with, it's a, like a coming of age story for Jesus, right? And the father, Yahweh, is passing his kingdom to his son. That's what this is about, okay? And he's called us to share in that inheritance, okay? And Paul says here, this is the idea that we have an inheritance in Christ. A lot of people don't understand the way that Jewish election works, and this is part of the problem. We tend to think that all of these promises are to us as individuals, but that's not how Jews understood election to work, and that's not biblically how election works. No, it's the promises are for the corporate body, okay? All aspects of election are always corporate in nature, meaning if you were an Israelite, you were promised 
that you were going to have rulership over all the nations, right? You were going to be first among the nations. There's all these great promises given to the Israeli people that they would have the land forever, all this kind of stuff. Now question, were there a lot of Israelites throughout history who did not live in the land? Yes, literally for like the past 2,000 years, almost all the Israelites that were born did not live in the land of Israel. Was God unfaithful to his promise? No, because the promise is given to the people group, right? But you, in the time that you are living, may not share in that particular promise given to the people group. Does this make sense? God's promises are given to the people group, but our portion of that inheritance differs according to our faithfulness. Okay? So the idea here is that God is calling us as his people to the high calling of God to share in the fullness of, an, of his inheritance. All right? But the truth is that all of us are only going to reach some percentage of that high calling. All right? Now, some of us might be, you know, and then you'll be our boss in the age to come. All right? Like, if you, you know, but Paul, Paul says here, the heirs provided will rule with him, provided we suffer with him. Suffering is one of the criteria that determines if you're going to have a position of rulership. So you might be a Christian, but if you don't seriously suffer for Christ, you, can, you need to understand you will almost certainly not have a position of high rulership in the age to come. This is why Peter and John rejoiced when they were whipped, right? Understanding that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Okay, that happens all the time in the scripture, right? If you want to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. How do you demonstrate that type of servanthood? By suffering for Christ, okay? A lot of people think like, God, I'll do anything, but I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be a missionary, Lord. I'll do whatever, but I don't want to be a missionary and I don't want to be martyred or anything like that, right? But Lord, I'll serve you. They don't understand what they're praying, right? What they're praying is, is Lord, I don't want the highest positions of my share in the inheritance, right? I don't want the highest calling right? And that, and God honors that prayer. That's the scary thing, right? He honors those prayers, right? It should be the other way around. Lord, give us the faith that we would be able to stand in the time of, of testing, right? Give us the faith to stand. Because if Jesus couldn't inherit his calling without suffering, why would you think you would, right? Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, therefore he was given the name above every name. Does this make sense? Okay. All right. Let me pause there really quick. We're going to get into our purpose in this age in a second here. Let me pause there because that's a lot of big picture theology, right? And there's some things that I said there that were probably a little bit controversial. So any questions, thoughts, anything, this is the time. All right. Yeah, I think it's pretty consistent in Scripture that the Lord takes our desires into account, right? And so all that I'm getting at there is that if we don't even want, like, you don't, you don't have because you don't ask, right? That's what James says, right? To get the greatest blessings in the kingdom, you have to eagerly seek after them. Because not, you have to get a vision for it, and then you have to seek after it in prayer, and then you have to pass through the testing to be counted worthy of those things. Does that make sense? There's a process to it. So if you don't even seek it, then your chances of doing it are, 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 are very low, right? Now, I'm just speaking in generalities. There's always exceptions to generalities, right? But yeah, the general rule of thumb is that if you want the greatest you know, positions in the age to come, you have to go after them, okay? And let me just say a little bit of something about this because, look, I got convicted that in my life, I didn't realize this, 
But I, I was always trying to crucify my, my personal ambition, right? That's generally taught in Christianity today, right? Like, you want to be great? Crucify that desire, right? Kill that desire. Get rid of it. And you know what we have? We have a lot of visionless Christians, right? Who are like, all right, I've killed off all my desires now, <laughs> all right? And then like very little drive. And, and, and I just want to say, that is not what the scriptures say, okay? It's not that you kill it off and never have any desire. You kill off the, the, the counterfeit part. You kill off the evil part of it. Does that make sense? We baptize our desires, all right? We baptize our, we crucify them so that we can be raised with the right version of the desire. All right. And Jesus says this to the Pharisees in John five or six, right? He says, like, how can the reason you don't understand what I'm saying is because you don't understand the things of God. And he says, because you how how can you understand these things if you receive glory from one another, but you don't seek the glory that comes from the one above? Right? This idea, we're supposed to be seeking after glory, right? But because we don't understand that, we go, no glory, no, none for me, God, all for you. Right? And God's like, well, I have some here if you want it. <laughs> right? In fact, there's there's many scriptures that talk about that. Romans 2, right, talks about how those who persist, right, in, in, in obedience, I forget the exact language Paul uses, right, they will be greatly rewarded. It talks about that very explicitly. In fact, over and over, Revelations 2 and 3, to the one who overcomes, I will give this reward. Jesus is trying to tempt us all the time, right? Do not seek after riches on earth where moth and rust destroy but seek after treasures in heaven, right? It's not telling you don't seek after riches. It's seeking after true riches. Does this make sense? And but because we don't have a paradigm of that, a lot of times people don't understand what this is all about. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about running the race, right? And beating my body and making it my slave. A lot of people have a lot of problems with that because it's like, Paul, it sounds like you're trying to earn your salvation, right? But Paul's not talking about his salvation. He's talking about a crown right? A position of rulership in the age to come, right? That's what he's talking about, okay? So this is the idea, and, and you have to understand, those positions are limited. There's not unlimited numbers of those positions, I think, right? I think that's why Paul says that after I preach, I have not disqualified myself, right? We're not exactly sure what he means by that, but yeah, the idea, like, these are, these are limits, these are coveted positions, right? When the disciples come to Jesus and they say, you know, they're asking him, who's greatest in the kingdom, Right? Jesus doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. He rebukes them because they're not to seek greatness in the way that other people seek greatness, right? The lords of the Gentiles rule over them, lord over them, right? But it must not be so with you. Whoever would be the greatest among you must become the servant of all, right? Jesus isn't rebuking. He's showing them how to become great. Does this make sense? Yes. Yeah, in its simplest, in its simplest form, salvation is eternal life right? The whole idea is that, guys, this human history is just the the introduction to this chapter, okay? All right, everything in this whole life is a test, all right? It's really a test of nations. Nations are being tested in this age, all right? This age is to determine which nations will be great in the age to come and which will be least in the age to come, all right? Now, God has determined, has foreordained that a remnant from every nation will be preserved. That's why Jesus won't return, until a remnant from every nation is saved, because those who are saved will receive eternal life. But the glory of the nation will be turned by the number of people that will be part of that nation and the greatness of, their, of, of, of what they've achieved, right? And they'll be rewarded. In the age to come, that's when the real story starts, okay? 
in the age to come, then we're given positions of rulership, and we have glimpses of what's to come, but all I can do is speculate, right, on what that's going to be. But look, a lot of times we think that, you know, in the age to come, like, we're going to be sitting on harvest, you know, singing songs forever on clouds and stuff like that. And I just want to say, that is not what the Bible says, okay? First of all, the Bible does not emphasize the idea of going to heaven when you die. I understand that that is the popular understanding, but that's not the emphasis of the scriptures. The emphasis of the scriptures is not that you're going to go to heaven, but that you're going to be born again. You're going to be raised from the dead, okay? You're going to be resurrected with an immortal, glorified body, all right? And you need a body because you have to do stuff in the age to come, all right? We're not evacuating from the earth. We're taking the earth over, all right? Our... The earth is our eternal home, okay? So that's why the meek will inherit the earth, right? In this age, we're going to be despised and persecuted for standing for righteousness and truth, but then we'll be rewarded and vindicated on the day of judgment, and we'll be given rulership according to our faith, right? According to our works, and then we will rule in the next age. And I can speculate on that. I think God will continue to create. In fact, We don't know how many spiritual beings there are. We don't know how many species of spiritual beings there are. We don't know the histories of those spiritual beings. Maybe they went through their own history and they were tested in another age and these are the ones that passed the test. And so they have a place now in the eternal drama of God, right? Does this make sense? I think God will probably continue to create things, all right? And I think we're probably gonna, you know, especially, you know, I don't wanna get too complicated with all this stuff. All right, our purpose in this age. A, the nations are being tested in this age. I hinted at that. Those nations that show faithfulness will be great in the age to come, and those that show little will be small. God has ordained at least a remnant will be saved from every nation, and so has planned outpourings of his spirit, what we call revivals, in different times for each nation. It is the duty of those who come to know him to pass down the knowledge of God to their descendants. All right? Let me, let me pause here, because i got to spend a little bit of time on this. Nations are being tested. What I mean is that every nation gets an opportunity to know God. Every nation. We're going to have revivals in every nation. Okay. What we saw is that we, we, if we read the Bible, we see that Israel had revivals. Right? Israel had revivals. Times when God would pour out spirit, there'd be great moves, great leaders, all these kinds of things, and it would be generally easy for many people to follow him. Something like that. But the general way that it goes is that has to be preserved. All right, that has to be preserved. So what you see over and over again, the command in the scriptures, if you read Deuteronomy 8, for example, it's do not forget the Lord your God, right? Do not forget the Lord your God. Don't forget what he did, how he took you through the wilderness, how he delivered you with mighty power from the Egyptians, right? Do not forget. And what he means by that is make sure to pass on the knowledge of God to your children, right? And he says, make memorials, write the laws on your signposts, Teach them to your children. Don't let your children forget what I have done. And what God is saying is that it's your responsibility to pass down the knowledge of God through the generations. Okay? This is a test that we see Israel face. And a lot of times we look at Israel and like they're like, dude, those guys are such failures, right? They like, they like forget about God all the time. But you have to understand, Israel is probably the best out of all the nations. All right? Israel has probably done this the best out of every nation. Okay, what do I mean? Our nation is only like how many hundred years old, right? Like 300-ish years old, and we are encountering massive apostasy, right? People don't even know about the first great awakening. That literally is the, the, the revival that birthed our entire nation. People don't even know about it anymore, right? 
We don't, we've been so unfaithful to teach our children and our children's children. And it's because we have this paradigm that that's not our responsibility. Does this make sense? The nations are being tested and passing down the knowledge of God is really important. So look at Romans 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God excuse me, the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So this is the idea that the fathers, right, speaking of Adam and Eve and then Noah, right, they had knowledge of God and they passed down the knowledge of God. But those peoples that did not consider the knowledge of God a thing valuable enough to be held onto, that's the language that Paul uses in Romans 1 there, right? He gives them over to their sinfulness. He gives them over, right? And that's a judgment because they did not steward the knowledge of God well through the generations. Am I making sense? Okay. So he says, therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Okay? So this is the idea that God expects nations to pass down his knowledge. And look at the, the, the um, command from Ephesians 6. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Right? My, my duty as a father, this, is, this command is given to me as a father. This is the primary command that's given to me as a father. My job is to make sure that I raise my children in the fear of the Lord. Does this make sense? Okay, so this is why a lot of people don't understand because we have this paradigm that again, God's just sitting on the throne up there and he's snapping his finger. He's like, oh, I want that guy to be saved. Boom, right? I want that guy to be saved. Boom, right? And uh, th- I don't think that's the picture that the scriptures give to us, all right? The scriptures give to us that we're in this war and at times God will position armies, right, to invade. I'm talking about spiritual armies to invade certain nations and to drive out the powers that are holding people in hostage, right? And then, you know, we come in as humans and we go, dude, it's awesome. Like I preached the gospel and they got saved. I'm so awesome. Man, I'm the best, right? I am the best, right? And they get we get arrogant and proud and all this kind of stuff, not understanding, no, God's the one who did the hard work, right? They did the hard work. We come in and reap the benefits when we preach and people receive the gospel and all this kind of stuff. But then it becomes our nation's responsibility to preserve the righteousness and to pass it down amongst the generations. Am I making sense here? Okay. All right, subjects of Christ's kingdom, our great commission is to disciple the nations and teach them to obey all of his commands. All right, understand this. God is after national righteousness. He wants the nations to be righteous. So sometimes we tend to think, you know, my job is to try and get a couple people saved or something like that, right? And then be faithful myself or something like that. But no, the way it works is we have the ability to influence one another as a nation, as a people group, right? That's why judgments come upon nations because we're corporately responsible. This is why Jesus actually says in John 5, right? You are the salt of the, and, and the light, right? You're the salt and the light. But what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? It's fit only to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. That language of being trampled underfoot is the language of God allowing foreign armies to invade and take over your land. Does this make sense? So what he's saying is that it's your job to preserve your people. 
It's your job to lead them into righteousness. But what happens if you stop doing your job? Then it's right that you share in the judgment of your nation. Okay? That's the implication. All right? All right. The subjects of Christ's kingdom... Oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, disciple the nations and teach them to obey all of his commands. We do this by preaching the gospel of the kingdom. All right? Now, there's another whole area of theology I think is greatly misunderstood. All right? If you ask the average person, what is the gospel? They're usually going to give you some version of penal substitution. Right? You are full of sin, but Jesus died on the cross, and so God the Father punishes him instead of you. If you put your faith in him, you could live forever. That's the gospel that we tend to preach. Can I tell you, that is not the gospel that they preached in the Bible. That's not what they meant by that term, okay? Now, to be clear, I think all of that is true, okay? All that is true, all right? But that's not what the term gospel means, all right? The term gospel was a word that was in use in Paul's day, right? And the idea of what the gospel was, the gospel was when the emperor died and a new emperor was given authority, then the gospel was proclaimed, all right? Augustus is Lord, all right? Augustus is emperor over, over the Roman Empire now, right? That's the gospel. That's the exact same way that the Bible speaks about the gospel, all right? The gospel is the truth that Jesus is the rightful ruler of heaven and earth and that he will be coming to judge all according to his standards. And then we call people to swear allegiance to him. That's actually what it means to put your faith in Christ, Okay, putting your faith in Christ does not mean I believe that he exists, right? It does not mean I believe that he did this handful, these handful of things, right? He died for my sins. All of us know people that believe all those things and live like everybody else, right? That is not what it means to put your faith in Christ. To put your faith in Christ is to give him your allegiance as your Lord. Okay, and again, this was actually understood in ancient times. So there was an ancient horse, uh, historian. If you study the first century at all, the, the most prominent historian is a man named Josephus. Okay, who was a Roman general, and Josephus records that he conquered a city, and the elders of the city came out and gave faith, gave pistis. Pistis is the Greek term for faith. They gave faith to him as the Roman general. Right? What does that mean? They gave him their allegiance. They gave Rome their allegiance. Does that make sense? That's exactly the way that the Bible speaks about putting your faith in Christ. It's not about believing that he did certain things. It's giving him allegiance, and our allegiance is demonstrated by our obedience, right? That's why Paul speaks of the obedience of faith, right? That's, how, that's why we have this idea that if you really believed, you would do it. Is that true? Yeah, kind of, right? I understand why they say it like that. I, it's just easier to understand. What it means is allegiance, all right? Matthew 28, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Again, the idea here is that prior to the cross, the nations were given by the Father to these other gods. They had legal ownership in the eyes of the Father over all of these nations. But after the cross, every nation has now been given to the Son. That's why he has authority to send his apostles into the nations and command their obedience. Does this make sense? Now, the problem is we now live in a post-Christian culture. The original context of when the gospel was released, everyone was polytheistic. 
right? And we as modern peoples, we look at them and we're like, dude, those guys were so dumb, right? Those guys were so superstitious and dumb, right? The sun's rising, like, oh, it's a god. Let's worship it. You know, like, that's the way modern peoples think about ancient peoples, right? That they're superstitious and stupid. But the truth is, they had a much better understanding than we do. That there actually are all these gods. And they actually do have power. And they actually do do stuff. That was the context in which Christianity was released upon the world. Does that make sense? In that context, they were declaring that all the gods that you worship, they were actually created by the great God Yahweh, right? They're created by the one true God. And now that God has given authority to Jesus, to this one figure. And that's and and what happened when they when they started to preach that? They got persecuted, right? They got persecuted for preaching that kind of stuff, right? When Paul goes to Ephesus, and he's preaching and people start to believe him. Why do they believe him, by the way? Because he's doing signs and wonders, right? The power is given to demonstrate the reality of the kingdom, right? And when people start to get converted, what happens? The silversmith in the city starts to raise a riot, right? Why? Because they're turning their hearts away from, from Diana, right? The goddess that was the patron goddess of, of, of Ephesus. Does this make sense? They're at war, though. It is, a, it is a war. And this is what we have to understand to get this. All right. Acts 17. So this is Paul in the city of Athens. Athens, if you understand the ancient world, Athens was like the place to be. All right. It's like the center of cultured thought, right? You have like Socrates and all of these great philosophers, right, in Athens. And Paul's standing up in the form of Athens. And this is what he declares, right? He says, I see that you guys are very religious, that you worship all these, these gods, right? But let me tell you something. There's one God that made all of these other gods, right? And that's what he starts to say. And then he says this, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has said a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. All right? So he says, that's the biblical gospel. All right? The biblical gospel is Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and earth, and now you owe him your obedience. All right? And to those who give him their faith, he will raise them from the dead just as he was raised from the dead. And what happens, by the way, when Paul preaches this? They start laughing at him, Right? Because he's talking about dead people coming back to life. And they're like, like zombies, Paul? <laughs> is that what this is? Like you know, they, dead people coming back to life, right? And this idea was ridiculous in the Greek world, right? It's like, this is ridiculous. But dead people don't rise from the dead. But Paul's preaching this and he's confronting all of the, the idol worship. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because we're going to get into this into the next session, right? Many people do not understand the confrontational nature of the gospel and the kingdom, all right? The scriptures are saying is that we are at war with these other kingdoms, okay? We are at war with these other kingdoms. The kingdoms are places of different allegiance and ideology, which we will get into in a second here, okay? In Paul's day, it's because they worshiped other gods, so they had allegiance to these other gods, right? Well, what happened? Christianity came in and wiped all that out. Does this make sense? It was Christianity that destroyed polytheism, all right? Christianity started to destroy polytheism in all of Europe and then in, in all these other lands. And what starts to happen? The enemy raises up a counterfeit, all right, called Islam. Islam is a very counter, it's an it's a antichrist kingdom, all right? It's very similar to Christianity. 
but several important components are different, right? And what happened, Islam started to forcibly conquer all these other polytheistic places. And so now we have a world where it's all dominated by only a few key ideologies or reasons. We have to say these are kingdoms. These are spiritual kingdoms that have conquered all of these other kingdoms. Does this make sense? Now what's happened in America is that we were very Christian, but just like what happens in many Christian nations, we start to forget the Lord, right? And now we're, we're giving into humanism, which we're, we're, is going to be a, a main topic that we're going to talk about here. Okay. All right. I, ta- I, already, I already talked about this, so I'm not going to go too deep into it. We will all be judged on our performance in this commission and be rewarded according to our deeds. Okay. Eternal life is a free gift by faith. Okay. I need to be really clear on this. You cannot earn eternal life. Eternal life is given for allegiance to Christ. Okay. But all the rewards of the age to come are by works, okay? Are by deeds. A lot of people don't understand this, which is why the Bible is really confusing. Because it seems to be saying in some places, like, you can't earn it, you can't earn it. And then in other places, it's like, but you better be faithful, right? You better work, right, hard for the Lord. And it sounds like schizophrenic, right? And so you, you like, go between pastors and one of them saying, stop trying to earn anything from God. Gosh, you're so legalistic. And don't you understand Paul saying you can't earn anything? And then the next week, he's like, you need to pray more, right? Why aren't you praying enough, right? And then, and then we're so like, <laughs> like so many Christians are so confused. Like, do I do nothing or do I do everything? And you get caught in this, in this kind of crazy ping pong between like legalistic work, right? And then, you know, apathy where you're not doing anything, right? And the truth is that you have to understand how the Bible talks about all of these things, all right? Salvation is by faith, but all the rewards are by works. And look, the primary purpose of the judgment is to not is not just to give eternal life, but to give rewards. Does this make sense? The way I always put it is that the final judgment, we tend to think of it in the Christian church as a pass-fail, right? You ever take a test uh, class pass-fail in college? I took a class pass-fail once, right? I got an A on the midterm, I nailed it, so I knew all I had to get was a high F on the final, right? So I didn't study at all, right? I went to that final. I finished that thing in like 15 minutes. I remember I put the test, you know, on, on his desk. I remember all the other kids in the class were like, they were watching me like, how did you finish that fast? That's impossible. But it wasn't because I was aiming for a high F, <laughs> right? I just needed to not get like a 30%, right? As long as I got like a 40 or higher, I was going to be fine, right? But that's the way most Christians live their life right? The way most Christians live their life is that they just need to get a passing grade, right? If I just hold on to Jesus, I get heaven. And guess what? Then I think, well, I can get heaven and I can get the earth too, right? I can be rich and have all this kind of cool stuff on the earth and then I can get heaven and then I win life, right? That's the way most Christians think and that's because that's how we're teaching it to them, all right? But the truth is the final judgment is not a pass-fail test, it is a graded exam, right? And in fact, it is the hardest exam that you will ever take because you're taking it right now, all right? Because here's the truth. If, if the test is too easy, then all these people ace it and you can't tell where everybody belongs. But if the test is really hard, then you know exactly where every person scores in the exam. Does that make sense? The test is so impossibly hard that Jesus is the only one to who could ace it, all right? And so we just think, oh, well, thank God he aced it and I get his righteousness, right? And I'm like, that is a misunderstanding, 
right? That's not what the Bible intends to say there, okay? No, you don't get Jesus' grade, right? The way I always put it is if I can see your sin, God can see your sin, right? Like some people teach like, all my sin is hidden in Christ, you know? Like he sees me just like when he looks at me, he looks, he sees Jesus. I'm like, no, if I can see your sin, God can see your sin, (laughs) right? Like, yeah, it's a graded exam. And my paradigm is like this, all right? My paradigm is like this. I think 90% of all the people that have ever lived are going to get an F on this exam, okay? Meaning they do not get eternal life. Only 10% of all the people that have ever lived will get eternal life, all right? Of those 10%, 90% of those 10% that get eternal life will get a D on the final exam, all right? Meaning they'll receive eternal life, but they will get no rewards in the age to come. So already we're at 99% of all the people who have ever lived, Right? Same thing, 90% of those who don't get a D will get a C. Does that make sense? So we're talking about 0.1% of all the, the groups. So what I'm saying is to get an A on this exam, to be bride of Christ, you have to be the best of the best throughout history. Like it's really, really, really hard. All right, this is, this is my speculation, okay? I'm speculating here. But this is what I think is true. And this is the way I live my life. I asked the Lord, you know, because when I felt like he showed me this paradigm, I asked him, Lord, what, what grade would I get? This was like, I don't know, five years ago, something like that, four or five years ago. And I felt like he said, you would get a C plus right now. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And on one level, that's like, dang, I suck. But that's not how I felt because I felt like, actually, that's actually really good. All right? I'm actually like, thank you, Lord. Right? Thank you for a C plus. That means I have a hope of getting like a B of getting into the B realm, right? And, you know, this is just, uh, this is my speculation, but I'm trying to give you a paradigm of what I think it's going to be like. Does that make sense? All right? So that's why a lot of people, the way I always put it is this. Dude, my mom made me start studying for the SAT when I was in ninth grade. Right? She, she got me private tutoring. All right? That's how Asians roll. All right? Yeah, it was all, I was like, why am I doing this? Like, none of my other friends are doing this, right? I have to, like, you know, take SAT tutoring, you know, four years before I have to take the stupid test, right? But I'll tell you, when I took the SAT, I knew that test inside and out, all right? I had that test freaking down, all right? Other people, they just go, ah, well, I'll just I'll get what I get, right? And they just go and they take it, all right? Can I tell you, that's how people approach the final judgment. All right. That's how people approach the final judgment. They just go like, oh, I'll just get what I get. But I'm saying, no, like literally, like the final, the final judgment is your most important test. Oh, I forgot it's connected to all this stuff. And this is your study guide, right? The Bible is your study guide for this thing, right? And that's why the scriptures are saying devour this because it's giving you insight into the reality of the world. Does this make sense? Okay. The, the, another way that I put it is that, you know, when you're in high school, a lot of people, they just like, they just want to be popular, right? They just want to be popular. But what they don't understand is after high school, no one freaking cares how popular you were, right? No one cares that you were the prom queen, right? Like if you bring it up, you're the loser, right? Dude, I was the prom queen when I was like, like, like nobody cares about that, man, right? Like, but some people, have wisdom. How do they get that wisdom? People who are older imparted that wisdom to them, right? Like, guess what? Nobody is in, is in high school and is like, dude, 
I'm a steady all the time, right? I love studying. Nobody loves studying, right? Nobody likes studying. What they have is they have parents, right, who know what happens after high school. And so what do they do? They say, hey, who cares if you're popular, right? Don't do social media. Don't do any of that stuff. Don't go to parties, right? Study all day long, right? And why do they do that? Because they have vision for what's next. Am I making sense? That's exactly what the Bible is telling us, right? It's trying to give us vision for what's next. This life is like high school. It doesn't matter if you're popular or rich in this life because it lasts for that long. 70 years or 80 years is nothing compared to eternity. Does this make sense? So you've got to get a robust vision for the judgment. All right. All right, point D. And this is going to lead us into our, our, our main section here. Oh, we only have 10 more minutes. Our opponents are not primarily people, but rebel spiritual powers and their false ideologies that cause people to resist the authority of Jesus. Okay? Like, we should understand this. Ephesians 6, our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our word literally at war with those guys. Right? That's who our war is against. But a lot of times we don't know how do we fight against a spiritual power. Right? I grew up in the Korean church. The way we teach spiritual warfare, pray as loud as you can. <laughs> right? Pray louder. Right? You shout, and now you're really doing spiritual warfare. Right? Can I just tell you, that is actually not what spiritual warfare primarily is. Okay? Now, there is an element of spiritual warfare that is in prayer, and obviously that's a huge part of Sapha and Contend. Okay? So that's very important, but when the Bible talks about spiritual warfare, look at what it actually says. 2 Corinthians 10. Three, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul is saying our war, the way we do spiritual warfare, is we fight arguments and ideologies. And guess what? That's exactly what he did, right? When we look at Jesus and Paul, what are they doing? They're reasoning with people, right? They're, a lot of times it turns into arguments, right? They're arguing with people. They're trying to tear down ideologies that they have in their heads that are based on lies, right? A lot of times we don't understand. When you see Jesus, Jesus is contending. He's trying to help them understand the nature of the kingdom, right? He's rebuking their false ideologies. He's reasoning with them. Does this make sense? And that's exactly what we see Paul doing. Paul goes into the synagogues. He reasons with them all the time. He goes into the forum of Athens. He reasons with them. Evangelism is spiritual warfare. Evangelism is spiritual warfare. Does this make sense? Okay. And again, this is not to diminish the prayer part of this because we all believe prayer is an important aspect of this, right? But when we're looking at what the Bible talks about, it talks about this idea that we call modern-day evangelism. And I, I want to get into that a little bit because we have to understand how evangelism really works. Okay, But before we do, questions about any of that last section? If not, we're going to power through the section, and then we'll go to lunch. Yes, it's a great question. All right. Well, the good news, and the way the Bible phrases all the time, is the hope of eternal life. Right? The hope of eternal life is brought to light through the gospel. Right? Immortality is brought to light through the gospel. So the idea is really that the good news 
is that God created everything with an order. We are currently out of order, but he's putting everything right, and that's going to happen in eternity, right? I mean, he's giving them the vision. In fact, the way I'll put it is like this. Every worldview, and I'm, I'm going to get into this in the next section, but we'll do a little bit fast forward to answer your question. Every worldview has a version of heaven. Okay, so Islam has a version of what's going to happen. They believe that the Islamic army is going to conquer the entire earth, then the whole earth will be ruled by Sharia law, and then there will be peace. There'll be no more war. We won't fight anymore. That's a kind of a beautiful vision. All right, if you're in, in Islam, that is your vision. That's what you're hoping for. Right? Guess what? Humanistic ideology, which is the dominant ideology here, also has a version of that. It comes through education and compromise, right? It's humanism, right? We're going to get so educated that we're all going to learn. We don't need to fight over resources because we're going to have technology that's going to be so great that nobody will ever lack again. And then we're going to have a world government, right, where everybody compromises and we all get along and we have peace and then we go explore other new planets, right? Star Trek. Star Trek is like the humanistic heaven, right? They all have a vision of this. And in fact, I'll argue that in our culture, that is the most compelling vision in our culture today. All right, if you go to universities talk about this is what they're dreaming of, right? If you go to Berkeley, everybody's like, oh, I'm going to build the most amazing nonprofit that's going to bring all people together and then they're going to they're fellowship and, and love each other. That's the vision for Facebook, by the way, right? We're going to bring all the people from earth together and they're going to be able to be friends, all everyone. And it's like the opposite, right, in reality, right? But everybody's got that dream that, of how they're going to help build this humanistic version of heaven. And so that's all I'm getting at. The idea is that the kingdom is coming to earth, the kingdom of the sun, and that we're going to enjoy and be part of that kingdom for eternity. So eternal life is really the most practical way that we communicate that vision, but there's a lot more to it. Okay, what I'm going to get to in evangelism is that you can't effectively evangelize in 10 minutes, which is why we basically try and get people to evangelize today, right? Let me have this 10-minute conversation with you and convince you that Jesus is real and loves you and has a destiny for your life, and you can go to heaven, right? And I just want to say, it doesn't work, okay? Not like that, all right? It doesn't work like that. And all right, so I said ideology is the thing that we fight against, right? In Paul's world, is poly, polytheism, the belief that there were many gods and that they were all relatively equal, right? That was not true. They just didn't know about Yahweh. They didn't know there was one great God that created all the others and that ruled over all of them. Okay, so that's what Paul's doing in Athens, right? In Acts 17, that's what he's saying. You worship many gods, but you don't know that actually one God created all gods, right? And we are all his children, all right? So what is he doing? He's arguing against a deeply held belief in ideology, and it's hard to get that thing out. Today, we are primarily dealing with humanism, okay? That's the thing we're dealing with. Secular humanism is now the dominant ideology in the Western world, okay? It's characterized by three primary anti-biblical beliefs. Number one, there is no power greater than man, all right? All religions exist to serve men and increase their happiness. That's why for most humanists, like, they don't care if you're Christian. Like, yeah, Christian, that's great, that's cool. My grandma's Christian, right? Oh, you're Muslim? Awesome. Whatever makes you happy, right? Why? Because they don't believe any of it, really. And guess what? Christian humanists don't really believe it. Okay, they really believe the Bible is just like, oh yeah, it's some nice wisdom, helps you live nicely. By the end of the day, it's got to make you happy. And the day that Christianity stops making you happy, you should ditch it, right? Why? Because their, their ideology is not actually Christianity, it's humanism. And there's lots of Christian humanists, okay? Number two, 
There's no sinful nature in man. People are inherently good and all evil tendencies are caused by external factors like poverty, oppression, right? Good and evil are social constructs. We determine what's good or evil, right? That's why in, you know, 2004, Barack Obama can be against gay marriage and four years later or six years later, he's for gay marriage and it's like, well, morality changed because that's what morality does. Right? Morality shifts as humans decide what we think is good or bad. So good or bad is really determined by what's popular and unpopular. Does that make sense? All right, number three. There's no absolute right and wrong. Right and wrong are social conscious. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry. There's no sinful nature. Meaning, this is why humanists believe that we can reach utopia. Because, you know, you can, you can dream about it and like, create something beautiful and we're all creating something beautiful and life is getting more beautiful and pretty soon we're going to have one world government and we're going to have renewable energy everywhere and technology is going to be great. No one's going to be hungry or poor anymore, right? This is all humanistic belief. Why? And why is that possible? Because we're inherently good people, right? The only reason people are bad is because, you know, they're poor, they were abused when they were small, or something like that, and then once you like heal them or like give them enough resources and education, then people are good. All right, that is basic humanistic belief. Okay, now all of these are anti-biblical. I mean, the Bible argues exactly the opposite. All right, the Bible's going to argue right that there is a power greater than man. Obviously, there's many of them. Number two, there's no sinful nature in man. There is a sinful nature in man. Right, that the problem with us is that we can't build anything truly good when we do it in our own strength. It always ends up terrible. All right, and we'll we'll get into exactly how that's how that has happened throughout history, and then there is absolute right and wrong. Just because something is popularly true, does not believe that God does not mean that God thinks it's true. Does that make sense? So we believe in absolute right and wrong. Okay, now here's what we have to understand: secular humanists have seized the primary institutions that influence youth. All right, movies, TV, music, social media, schools, news organizations have all become dominated by secular humanists. In more recent years, it's Marxists, which we're going to get into, right? This is why even among Christians, only 25% remain Christian by the time they graduate from college, okay? So here's what, here's, here's what I'm getting at. We train Christians to go out two by two, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, right? And have conversation with random people and in a 10 to 15 minute conversation, try and convince them of the entire biblical worldview, right? Or at least that Jesus loved them and all that kind of stuff. And can I tell you, that is not what humanists do, right? Have you ever been, you know, the, the wandering humanist evangelists have come to you and like, hey, can I tell you the good news about humanism, right? Like, no, they don't do that, right? They don't do it like that. They do it through cultural institutions, all right? And the church hasn't understood that you, you can't be married to the form of doing evangelism. Paul did that in his day because they didn't have cultural institutions, right? That they were in control of or that they had, they had the ability to influence and stuff like that. What they had was the power of God. And so they went out to do the power of God. Hey, guess what? We don't have the same kind of grace in the power of God. And a lot of people go like, yeah, why? Why? How come Paul laid his hand on the sick and they got healed and I try and lay my hands on the sick and they don't get healed. And then you have the spectrum, right? Some will say, oh, it's just because you don't have enough faith, right? And if you had more faith, then you would be like Paul. And there is some truth to that, okay? There's some truth. But I want to say it's the minor truth. Can I put it to you another way? No, what it really is is that God is judging the nation. 
So he's not releasing miracles. Okay. And guess what? That matters. So if you are trying to do evangelism the way that Paul did evangelism, I think you're misunderstanding what our role is in this age, okay, or in these times, okay? And I want to be careful here because some people obviously do have an evangelistic gift to be able to compel, like, compellingly talk to people in short bursts like that. All right, studies say that it's about 10% of believers. About 10% of believers have an evangelistic gift where they can do effective contact evangelism. But can I tell you, in longer-term studies, almost very few of those people stay in the church. Very few of those people that make decisions for Christ stay in the church. In fact, the only ones that really do are the ones that are relationally connected with strong Christians, right? And they're being walked through in discipleship, all right? So when we actually go out and evangelize, your, our success rate is like extremely, extremely low, all right? And I'm going to make an argument because we're not doing it with wisdom. And when you look at the secular humans, in fact, well, do you guys know the story about the Seven Mountain Mandate? Right? Bill Bright and, what's his face? Lauren Cunningham have a dream in the 1970s. They have the same dream, essentially. All right? And basically, God rebukes them and says, you've been trying to build, you've been trying to do the kingdom just through church and religion. Right? But the truth is, you have to influence all the places of culture. Right? It was a rebuke to them. But it's very important because this is exactly what the humanists have done. All right, guess what? Nobody, well, up until recently, 10 years ago, you wouldn't watch TV and all the characters are saying, God sucks, right? There is no God, right? Jesus sucks, right? They're not saying that kind of stuff. They're saying truths about secular humanism. They're preaching truths in a much more subtle manner, right? And that's something the church doesn't understand that you don't, it's worldview. You have to, you have to give somebody a right worldview. And that's, you can't do that in a minute. You can't do that in 10 minutes because people have dearly held beliefs and they have these beliefs in such a way that it constructs an entire worldview. So if you come in and you say, hey, God loves you and he has a great purpose for your life and he wants to bless you, well, guess what? That fits in with a lot of people's worldview, right? Their worldview is like, yeah, there might be a God out there somewhere who loves me and has a purpose for my life, right? Because that's, that's a lot of humanistic philosophy, right? And so they go, okay, okay. But once you start saying, and you're going to have to sacrifice your life for him, right? Once you start saying, you're going to have to give up things that you do, like, oh, and guess what? This God doesn't like homos- homosexuality. Now they're like, wait a second, right? This isn't the God you told me about at first, right? The God you told me about at first is one that fits in my worldview right? But the God of the Bible is quite a bit different than that God. Does that make sense? He doesn't fit nicely into the humanistic worldview, which is why a lot of people walk with God for a season of their lives, and then they run into something that doesn't match their worldview, and they get booted out of it, okay? And my point is that we have to train people, disciple people fully on worldview, and we have to use institutions to do that. The church has not really understood all of these things, which is why the Bible makes such little sense to people. Because you pick out a handful of verses, and you say, oh yeah, like Jesus loves me, and he died for me, and I'm going to heaven, and I understand all those verses. All the other verses don't really make a whole lot of sense to me, you know, but that's okay, and we don't need the Old Testament anymore. right? Like practically speaking, that's kind of how the Bible gets taught today. And the point is, it's not giving people complete worldview so they don't really understand why God is good, why judgment is good, why his commands are good, all this kind of stuff. And we're chucking people in and saying, do it, right? And my point is ideology 
is the battle that we're in right now. And the problem is most of the church doesn't understand how much humanistic ideology has already come in to be part of their worldview. And that's why if you go on Facebook, and I'm, I'm sorry I keep using this example. There's plenty of other examples, trust me. But this one comes to mind. If I go on Facebook and I say homosexuality is a sin, what happens? Right? People come after you, right? They come after you. Other Christians start rebuking you, <laughs> right? Like, why? Because all of this, that belief is not part of most Christians' worldview. Does this make sense? And, and this is a huge problem in the church today, right? All this stuff that I just talked about, about powers and how they rule over nations, how Jesus would give authority over them and how we're now in war against them, this is all fairly new for most people. And I'm like, okay, but this is, like, you can't understand half of these chapters of the Bible, right, without this worldview, right? Like, a lot of these things don't actually make sense without that worldview. But my point is that that's where we're at in the body right now, okay? So we're going to get into, a lot more into this issue of ideology. How do we effectively wage ideological warfare? And here's what I'm going to tell you. The Marxists are doing it well, all right? The church is doing it terribly in the West, at least, all right? But the Marxists are killing it, all right? And we're going to look at Marxism as a worldview, how it compares to the biblical worldview, and then we're going to be able to see a lot of the, the differences, hopefully, more clearly. Make sense? Okay. Okay.